I was uh, at a church once uh, where I had a member who sweetest, one of the sweetest ladies in the world. She had, to the best of her ability, done everything she could do to raise her children properly. But as we know, the promises of Proverbs are general rules and there are always exceptions. And this lady had a son who had decided to come out of the closet. He was going to be a homosexual. She was one of the biggest givers in the church. It was a little bitty church, and she was one of the biggest givers. And she came up to me one day. Um, I hadn't been there very long. And she said to me, now, my son has chosen this lifestyle. And sometimes he comes to visit me. And when he comes to visit me, don't preach on homosexuality. Uh, I said, man, if I hadn't planned on preaching on it that Sunday, I will assure you I won't preach on it. But if God has devised it, that that is the sermon that he has for me on that Sunday morning and he shows up, I'm not changing what God has told me to change because you want me to. I also had a friend who went uh, to interview with a church in South Carolina. Uh, and they were right down the work road from, from the Marble plant. And half of their members worked at the Marble plant. And when they came in the interview, they told him, you can preach on anything in the world you want to, except tobacco. Malachi has and is dealing with as we come to our series this week is the desire of the hearer to have his ears ticked. The desire of the hearer to not squirm at the message of God. The desire not just the hearer but also the leadership to not go where God would have them to go. Um, the truth is many if if not most of God's messages for us will make us squirm. They'll push us out of our comfort zone because that's what God is in the habit of doing. He's not in the habit of letting us sit around and, and be fat and happy. Uh, so somewhere uh, along the way, we have let society lead us to believe that God wants to make us happy and comfortable. God doesn't want us happy he wants us holy. And happy is just a byproduct. Happy just happens when we become holy. And the reason happy happens when we become holy is because the things that we want that will make us happy change when we go from the place that we were at into the holiness that God wants us to be. And often in, in many areas of our life, our failure to thrive and thus find happiness is due to our lack of commitment. Commitment is this idea in our text this morning, uh, there in, in Malachi chapter 2. Last week we, we talked about this idea that God had on being disobedient, about not honoring Him, about not worshiping in the right way, of not living the right way, of not doing the things that they were called to do. And He comes to an issue, and, and the issue today 
you may be reading the uh, heading in your text going, this is going to be a good one. Um, but the issue here has some practical implications for, for, for Israel at that point, but it also has a deeper application for those of us today. That's practical and deeper for those of us today. And so there it's in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 10, Malachi writes, Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if they present an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully. Do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now and we thank you. We praise you for your blessings. Father, we ask right now that you would take this time and use it for your glory. Father, use me as a vessel with the words that I speak be yours and yours alone. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people say. Amen. The question here for us is how then shall we live? It's the question for the priests. It's the question for Israel. A problem that was going on in Israel is that people have begun following the whims of emotion rather than the permanency of the relationship and commitment with God. That's what's been going on here. In general, in life, we have the choice to live in one of two ways. The shalom of God or the chaos of self. Those are the two options. Shalom. Now, most of us have heard throughout our, our time in church that shalom means peace. It's the standard greeting for, for Israelite people. It's shalom. It's the peace of God. The peace of God be upon you. But peace in shalom goes deeper than simply peace as we think peace. It is this balance of life. It is this idea that, that nature is where it needs to be. It's a walk of commitment. It's that your no means no and your yes means yes. It means that we follow through out of a sense of obligation and relationship to our fellow man that, that everyone has come together and that shalom means that there is justice. It means that there is equality before God. It means that all of these things are in the balance. If you put us on the scales, it's, the scales zero out completely. That's the shalom of God. It's walking with a peace as other places in the Scripture would describe it that surpasses all understanding. And then you have the chaos of self. Self-centered emotion. What I feel and what I want is more important than anything else. No matter who I hurt or what damage I may cause, doesn't matter. Now you may say, Brother Troy, my life is a chaos. I'm not a chaotic person. I'm a person who's controlled. I'm a person who, who does what I'm supposed to do. And so... I don't know that, that that's quite the, the proper choice, the shalom of God and the chaos of self. 
But here's the deal whenever you are a self-controlled person, when you have things under control in your own life, not everybody does. And everybody that you come into contact with is in your field of view. And how they act and react will change how you act and react. I saw a video this week on Facebook of a, an incident out in West Texas where as I-10 and I-20 come together, all the traffic was stopped because of the ice. But one truck didn't get the memo. He didn't stop. And he came barreling into all of the traffic in front of him. The people in front of him had their life under control. But the chaos of someone else threw their life into chaos. In life, we have a daily choice. We can live in the shalom of God. We can live with His peace. We can live with, with His justice. We can live where He wants us to be. We can live in that abundant life or we can live in the chaos of self. We can live chasing our emotions and chasing the things that we think are going to make us happy. I'm a, I've been listening to a very controversial singer this week, uh, this weekend. Um, some of you may know him. Some of you may think he's a heretic, but his name is Larry Norman. Larry Norman uh, was a Christian singer in the 70s. And uh, as you read his lyrics, he very much reminds me of Ezekiel and some of the prophets. Because he doesn't hold back. He's singing about Jesus. He's singing about what needs to happen. He's singing about exactly what I'm saying here. Because uh, the first verse of one of his songs is sipping whiskey from a paper cup. It's all about chasing those things that people in the world think make them happy. But the chorus is always the same. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer. You know, we would never sing that song in church. <laughs> but I know some things that Ezekiel said that I kind of, when I read them out loud, I go, man, I can't believe I just said that. That's just the habit of God's prophets sometimes to say things that make us uncomfortable. And it's those things, though, that we sometimes need to hear in order to get us out of our self-centeredness and into God's shalom. The question our text really answers today is how do we live in the shalom of God? Because God is talking to these priests especially about what it is that they have done wrong, where they have faltered, where they have fallen. And as we talked about a little last week, we're all called to be priests at this point. We are a royal priesthood. So these things kind of apply to all of us. And the first thing that he tells them that they should not be doing is that they should not act faithlessly. He says, live a life of commitment. Live a life rooted in the faith that you have in God. Faith that calls you beyond your selfish desires into something more. Because he says, why do we act treacherously against each other? We're fading the covenant of our fathers. Why do we do these things? Why do we come against each other in the way that we do? The call of faith and commitment to God is not a light one. And I think so often we have, we have sold it as that way. You know, you know those, those 
dream sequences in those love movies where it's all cloudy on the sides and they're skipping through the, the flowers to get to each other. We make Christianity seem that way sometimes, and there are those feelings. But there's also the commitment. There's also the daily choice. Throughout our text, he uses the word covenant. There's this deep meaning to covenant. It's not limited in duration. It's not limited in liability. It's completely consuming. It's eternally existing. What he's calling believers to is a life of commitment that is apparent in our daily dealings with one another. Faithful to one another rather than faithless. Are we people of our word? Are we people of integrity? And he gives reasons really that we have to live faithfully. He says we have one father. We have one father. We're family. With all the things that that entails. Have you ever been there? Uh, this week with my kids? Stop it! It's your sister. That's your brother. You're going to have to love each other long after I'm gone. You're family. That's what he says. We have one father. We're family. We have, we have one father. We, when we break commitment to each other, we break the covenant of family. When we deceive each other, we break the bonds of family. And we dishonor our father. Then he says we have one creator. We're created by the same God for the same purposes. Therefore, we won't be created to act differently. It's hypocrisy to think that my creator God created me not to have to hold up my commitment with you, but your creator God, who is the same God, should force you to honor your commitment to me. But there's extenuating circumstances. Really? What are they? Did you go to the cross? Did you die? Because he did. All your circumstances are gone. We have this one creator. And he says it profanes the covenant of our fathers. Abraham's covenant. Give a life and hope to all his true offspring. He says don't act faithlessly. But he goes on to say don't marry faithlessly. Now, that might not be as pressing for most of us in this room. But somebody may hear it who needs to know. The charge Malachi is bringing against Israel here is that they're marrying an individual who does not share in their relationship and worship of the one true God. I know I was guilty of it in my lifetime. I mean, how many of us did some missionary dating, right? I think she's really pretty. And I know she doesn't know Jesus, but man, I'm going to tell her about Jesus. That's what Israel was doing. Right? They, they were marrying people who didn't believe in God. They were marrying people who were going to have an influence over their children. That's, that's what he's talking about here. He says, I want godly offspring. I want my offspring to know. Do you know how hard it is when people who believe different things marry each other? I mean, that's hard when it comes to things like allowance or the toilet paper roll going on the holder. But when you don't believe the same thing about God, that's next to impossible. Because what are the kids going to believe? Well, is they going to believe like mom? Is going to believe like dad? Who's going to have that choice? Who's going to have that final say? Who's going to do that? He says, you have profaned a relationship that's supposed to be a picture of God and His people by making a faithless person part of it. You made it part of something they cannot understand or truly be a part of. As believers, we understand marriage as a covenant, as a commitment, 
as something that, that, that we are bonded together with. But someone who doesn't know Jesus can't understand that. They can't grasp that. They can't do that. It shouldn't be this way. But the deeper principle here for us is that when a believer chooses earthly desire or emotion over the direction of God, we profane the very relationship we claim defines us. When we decide that what I want and what I desire is more important than what God has told me to do, we no longer have the right to call ourselves a Christian. I know I talk about the Waltons a lot, but I keep coming back to that one episode where John Boy is going off in the world for the very first time. And he's torn, and Mama's beside herself, and Daddy says, Remember, you're my son. Man, how powerful is that? Because you carry my name with you. And what you do will, will, will shine on me. Remember who you belong to. When we have the name Christian, when we follow Jesus, we carry his name with us. And if we don't do the things he's called us to do, when we choose earthly desire, when we choose emotion over the direction of God, we're saying, who cares? It doesn't matter that you died for my sins. It doesn't matter that you went to the cross. It doesn't matter because what I want in this moment is so much more important. We cannot claim to be seeking Jesus and conforming our lives to his will while choosing someone who does not have that same passion to be a part of a covenant with him. Now this doesn't mean, oh well, we just, I'm married to somebody who doesn't believe I should get a divorce. No, Paul clearly knocks that down over in 1 Corinthians. Clearly he says, if you're married to an unbeliever, as long as you're willing to stay, you stay. That's your job. But it does mean that you don't take divorce lightly. Malachi here begins ready in Israel for a teaching from Jesus that the disciples say no one can handle. That marriage is meant to be permanent. <laughs> Israel has begun seeing divorce as a small thing. In Israel at this point, <laughs> if I came home, and Carrie had burnt my toast, I could divorce her. And all the men would say, Yeah! Then he gets you a better one who won't burn the toast. That's where Israel was at this point. They were at the point where they could just ride a stupid and say, Go. I don't want, and he'd send her away. And the problem was, the way the law was written, that really tied that woman's hands. There were certain things she couldn't do, and she didn't have certain rights. And where was she supposed to go? And, but Israel to the point where like, okay, just, just, it doesn't matter. And God, because of it, is no longer taking their offerings. And he says, they ask why, he says, because God is a witness. I'm part of the covenant. I'm part of the binding contract. Here, long before Jesus appears, God is correcting this false teaching that a man can get a divorce for any reason. He said, I made her and I want godly offspring. Fix this. Do not take divorce lightly. Because you've been faithless to the wife of your youth. Now, there are two different translations here that lead to the same place. The Hebrew is kind of... <clears throat> you see, there's several different generations in the room. And if I said the word cool, it'll mean one thing to one generation, another thing to another generation, and something else entirely. Or, put it this way, 
If you're over the age of 30, so none of you young should answer these questions. If you're over the age of 30, what does the word cat mean? Cat. C-A-B. Cat. What does it mean? Something that goes on your head. If you're under the age of 30, what does the word cat mean? declares the Lord. And so you may be looking at me going, well those are two different things, but the problem is they lead to the same place. Modern translation says the man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. God, the other one says, I hate divorce, and the one who puts away his wife covers himself with violence. In the end, both of these lead to the same place, that God takes issue with taking covenant lightly and the individual who does so. That's what they both lead to. They both lead to the same place. They both speak of violence. Why violence? Why would they both speak of violence? Well, we've already talked about the man putting away his wife for no reason. She has no recourse. She has no legal right. Where does she go? But when we go to the other part and God says, I hate divorce, why does God hate divorce? Well, one, it goes against his perfect plan. He wants it to be permanent. It's a covenant nature. None of that, it sows destruction and pain. <laughs> Over in Jeremiah 3.8, God himself initiates a divorce. He says, I have written your sister a certificate of divorce and sent her away. God understands the pain and the heartache that occurs when a family is ripped apart. He gets it. He understands it. God hates divorce, but he loves divorced people. Because in Jeremiah, he then turns around and calls her to return. Come back to me. Return to me. God's grace is never ending. As we read this, I just know we have to, we have to make sure we touch on that. Divorcees aren't second-class citizens. It's not. It's not. The unforgivable sin. Because the root of the problem is taking covenant life. Because if we take this covenant with someone that we can see lightly, how do we take the covenant with the God of all creation that we cannot see? If I cannot be faithful to this one that I can see here, how can I be faithful to the one I cannot see? So what is our call today? We need to be people who live out the shalom of God, committed and faithful to one another. In our relationships, we should seek out the best will of God. Marriage, before marriage, you seek out a godly partner. If you're currently married, seek to strengthen that which you have. 
And don't consider breaking the covenant that you have between your, your spouse and God. But above all, seek to be committed more to God every day. That's the point of this chapter. It's not simply about marriage and divorce. It's about the level of commitment we carry in our lives. God has called us to be committed. Not just, not just to our spouse, but to our churches, to, our, to the people in the churches, the individuals, to Him. We're called to be committed. And today we, we so often spread ourselves so thin. It's hard to be committed. How many of you this week, when you were frozen in your house, were sitting there thinking, I've got so much stuff I need to get done? We couldn't, I mean, not, not you, you couldn't do it. But yet, we spent our time thinking about it. And we probably could have spent our time thinking a lot more about our commitment relationship to God and all the rest of it falls into place. Maybe this morning you're, you're going, okay, that was, a, that was an easy of a weird sermon. I agree. Um, but I pray that God spoke to you. Maybe this morning you've been lacking commitment. Maybe you've been afraid to commit. Maybe you've been afraid because you've been hurt before. You've been hurt by you've been hurt by people in the church. You've been hurt by people outside the church. You've just been hurt and you're afraid to commit. That fear getting in the way of living in the shalom of God. Because there in that spot and that stability, God will guide you through. Maybe this morning you want to pray. The altar's open. I'll pray with you. Maybe you want to share the missions or ministry. Maybe you want to join this church of membership. Maybe there is something that you have just been waiting out with that you're ready to let go of. It's time to let it go. Quit letting the devil and the world tell you who you are and know who God calls you to be. Maybe this morning you've never known Jesus. Maybe you've never taken a step to, to know him as, as Savior. Now's the time you walk down to Brother Troy. I want to know Jesus, and we'll go from there. But wherever you're at, whatever you need, give it to him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now. We thank you. We praise you for your presence.